This is Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio. All right, folks, we are back on Near Dark Radio. I'm your host, John Gower, and I am joined remotely in the studio today by Evelyn Vinyl. Evelyn is a personal trainer, a costume designer, and an award-winning burlesque performer. Um, how you doing, Evelyn? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, making it through this quarantine. Before I continue with your introduction, since we are going to be discussing queerness, I feel it appropriate to ask you what your preferred pronouns are. Uh, well, for me, that's actually a great question and something that I have been exploring, I guess, uh, over the past probably two, three years. I normally just tell people you can use whatever pronoun you want for me, uh, because it doesn't, not that it doesn't matter, but, um, I pretty much accept any of them. So I guess that falls under the gender fluid category. But uh, it especially is pretty fluid when I'm a performer, um, you know, as a burlesque performer. Yeah, <laughs> as a burlesque performer, I'm normally representing as a femme, but um, on occasion I do do a drag king uh, persona. And so I prefer people call me he in that moment. Um, but also in daily life, there are moments when I tend to be a little more masculine. So I do lean towards being they or he in those moments. How are you feeling today? Are you feeling more butch or more femme? <laughs> uh, I feel pretty in the middle today, actually. I think, uh, I think, I don't know if it's quarantine or what, but I feel like I've been sort of a lot more in the middle since all this stuff started up. <laughs> I, I can totally sympathize with that. So we'll go with they for this. Um, in addition to being a burlesque performer, you also own your own lingerie and costume company called Blue Lawless, which listeners can find on Etsy if they want to find some um, fun undergarments or commission full costume pieces. And most importantly for today's discussion, Evelyn identifies as queer. And it is the notion of queer that we are going to unpack on today's episode. Uh, so the first series of this podcast, we've been exploring the, the idea of the norm by means of abnormal or marginal practices or attitudes. And there's not really, to my mind, a more complex and poorly understood marginal community than the one we call queerdom. So rather than attempt... Uh, an academic overview of the subject, I wanted to just jump right in and ask you personally, what led you to first identify as queer? Uh, that also has been a journey that I've really only in the last probably five years been exploring myself. Like, So I, I very much considered myself straight through probably high school. Um, and then when I went to college, and I did go to an all-women's college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I sort of started branching out. <laughs> yeah, uh, started realizing that maybe that wasn't completely true. Um, and started identifying as bisexual. Uh, but at the time, I really still didn't have a grasp on what that even meant for me or um, how I would explore that because I didn't 
I, even though I acknowledged that it was a thing, I didn't really explore it. Um, and as I got older and left college, I think I started to see a little bit more um, and definitely experienced more personally. And then as I entered actually the burlesque community, I found out a little bit more and uh, related to more people and found out their stories and queer came up and it just fit for me. It felt right. And so I've been using that for the most part for the last like five years. All right. So you've initially discovered a bisexual tendency. Mm -hmm. Do you think the bi not being, for example, gay or straight or lesbian, but bisexual led you to a more intense exploration of yourself and your identity than those who, for lack of a better term, have a more prepackaged model that they can fit into. Like as a gay man, I there wasn't much exploration of my identity going into it. It was just puberty hit and that's what I was attracted to. Um, I mean, I guess it really depends on the person. But yeah, there was some aspect of it that for me, I really didn't know what it meant to be these things. Um, yeah, I, I sort of understood what lesbian and gay meant. Um, but even my definition of bisexuality has changed and my understanding of pansexuality. And um, I think that given the knowledge that I have now and experiences that I have now, looking back, you know, I, I still would have considered myself bisexual at the time um, because I really just didn't, based off of like my experience and also my attractions, um, but also what I was willing to admit to myself, I would say. Was queer a sort of broadening of the horizons from bisexuality? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, once I started to get a better grasp on what that all could encompass, like what the idea encompassed, I think that's when I started to realize, oh, okay, so it's not just about sexuality um, and it's not just about who I am as a person, what I'm identifying as, but this idea of a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and not in the like commercial kind of way. Um, yeah, yeah. But just sort of culturally, like one of the best, one of the best things that anyone ever said to me um, is I was having a conversation with my cousin who's a few years older than me and he and I have been super close since we were kids. And there was one day where we were having this really in-depth, deep text message conversation. I don't even know where it came from, but, um, at one point he just said, uh, you know, I really admire you for embracing being queer and you are the most queer person I know because you embody it in so many aspects of your life. 
and you embrace it and you don't, you don't question that it's something that speaks to you. And that was really, there was something about that that was really endearing. So, so yeah, yeah, so it's not just a, 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 a sexual phenomenon. It's not a gender phenomenon exclusively. It's not an identity. It's like you said, it's a lifestyle. Um, I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Like how does, how does queerness express itself in your professional life? And your social relationships. Mm. Um, I definitely, now that I've embraced it more, I feel like I do tend to have like more in-depth conversations with people about their experiences with dating or sex. Um, you know, if I'm comfortable asking those questions of someone, usually a friend, obviously, but, um, uh, yeah, I just, I'm more, I'm more interested in finding out what attracts people and not, not just in a sexual way, but romantically, because I, I really do separate sometimes like, you know, you can have sexual attraction for someone and you can have relation, uh, romantic attraction to someone. And the two things don't necessarily have to coincide, um, and so I think about all of my relationships now, whether it's a friend or a potential lover or, you know, family, like I think about all of my relationships and how, how the levels of love happen. Um, obviously with like partners and friends, I think about sexuality, um, and, and not necessarily from the standpoint of like, oh, I want to date my friends, like more of just like, oh, what is their experience and uh, how, how would their experience inform my understanding of my connection to them, their connection to the world? Um, I don't know. I just, I really am fascinated by human interaction and how, how did we get to this point where we actually felt like relationships make sense in the ways that we've had them before. Obviously that was informed by a lot of social conditioning as well, but um, what can relationships of different kinds mean going forward? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it sounds to me like it's a more, it's an attempt to have a more holistic approach to relationships generally in the sense that you you delve into, you explore those relationships in through different lenses and you understand, like you mentioned, the different, different aspects of love. Uh, the, mm -hmm. one of the podcast guests that we listened to noted that they're the Greeks. Well, she said the, the Latins, but it was actually the Greeks, honey, had <laughs> like six, you know, six different words for love, agape, philia, um, eros and that we sort of lump all love, be it between friends or between parents and children or between sexual partners. We just have one word for it. And that just the, the limitations of the English language to a certain extent inform the way we approach our basic relationships, some of our most basic relationships. 
For sure. Yeah, that part really spoke to me. And I, I think, again, like, the reason why queer, the idea of queerness really spoke to me is that idea of questioning those norms that we've had, questioning those things that have existed. Um, and I think that's what I think about when I think about, like, living a queer lifestyle is I've always questioned, <laughs> like, no matter what age I've been, I've always questioned the norms and questioned the the boundaries and limitations that my family put on me or society put on me. And whether or not I acted on that questioning is a different thing. But now, I think as an adult, I definitely uh, take that on. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely question those those boundaries today. I mean, it, you're a burlesque performer, um, and I thought it was interesting that when you it was a few months ago you told me that you were coming out to your family as a burlesque performer, and that just the you know the phrase coming out that struck me that oh like this is a lifestyle. Uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a non-normative lifestyle that similar to me being gay was something that you were afraid to reveal to your close family. And that was a big deal that you had to come out to them about it. Yeah. It, it felt like telling them I was queer, which I, I, I haven't done yet, actually. <laughs> which, <laughs> well, you have now if they're listening. Oh, uh, well, my parents, I don't know. They're fairly, uh, they're fairly sheltered. <laughs> I foresee having that conversation at some point, but, uh, you know, baby steps. Yeah, yeah. And it's a hard, I mean, like, just doing research for this conversation it's it's a very slippery subject it's a very difficult subject notion to try to convey to people that aren't familiar with it so yeah i understand baby steps there is a vast body of academic work done on this subject and according to queer theory in its in in queer in its broadest sense is simply that which is just outside the norm that which isn't normal, that which isn't accepted. It describes marginal behaviors, practices, sexualities, genders, um, although even that is a little bit dicey because a lot of queer theorists attempt to really do away with the conventional notions of gender. There's a branch of queer studies and feminist theory that challenges the idea that gender is even an essential part of ourself and holds that like sexuality and gender identity are merely social constructs. Do you, I mean, have you thought a lot about that in your own personal experience with it? Whether what, what aspects of queerness say, were evidenced really early in life and may have a biological origin or whether they're social constructs that you're rebelling against? For sure. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, <laughs> along with this journey of understanding my sexuality and my gender identity, um, I've been 
in therapy for the last couple of years and sort of having a better understanding of my parents and what, uh, what I took on from them. And I definitely think there was a very strong idea of like gender roles in my family, but my mom was the only one working for the longest time when I was a kid. So some of those gender roles were disrupted slightly. Ah, I think that was the first moment where I was like, oh, okay, so this doesn't have to be the norm. This doesn't have to be how things work because everything on TV was the opposite. So I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Um, I don't know if it's, <laughs> I've always been rebellious with all of that, but it, again, it just sort of made me go, well, why, why is that the norm? Why is why, why do all of these things exist? And obviously a good portion of it is we've just been this way for the longest time. But like humans want, they want to categorize things because they're taking their own experiences and applying it to whatever situation they come up with, right? Like you meet someone, you get to know them, you want to categorize them based on your own experiences because that helps you to relate to them. And I think we've all tried so hard just to relate to each other um, that we haven't taken into account like how, not only how can we question those things, but how can we relate even if we don't necessarily agree with someone or agree with their gender roles or their. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that it's, it's a process of communication at, at the bottom of it, that if we can't, you know, if, if, like you said, we, the reason we apply categories to people and things is so that we can more easily understand them and relate to them. If we're, trying to relate to people without assuming too many categories and assuming too many things about them and putting them into restrictive of boxes right at the outset, it just makes communication all that more important and a certain vulnerability in communication and a certain trust and approaching communication with good faith. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, I say this to every person who is ever having relationship issues, but communication is so key. And I know that we all talk about that, but what does that mean? And to a certain extent, I have started really thinking about brutal honesty as being the way to go. Mm -hmm. I understand that that's really difficult for a lot of people, um, but I think especially when you're questioning your sexuality or questioning your gender identity or anything in between where you're just like, what does this mean to me? What does my, you know, people who are finding themselves sexually attracted to someone that they've never, that gender has never attracted them before. And they're like, well, wait, what do I do now? How do I 
define myself. And it's like, well, you don't have to define yourself, but it's good to maybe question that and see where that takes you. Like, what is it about that person that attracts you? And maybe it's just, maybe it's just that one person for whatever reason, you're just like, yeah, that (laughs) I want that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, well, I I was going to say I've had that before, but it's always been a man. It's more of a type. (laughs) Somebody, somebody that's not my type just suddenly strikes me and I'm like, whoa, okay. Sure. Um, but I mean, and that's, that's the re I feel like that's the, the goal behind, behind a lot of queer theory is to deconstruct these existing social norms around sexuality and gender so that when you have those moments of, oh, this isn't what my category is supposed to be attracted to. It's not as, it's not an earth shattering experience. It's not a, an identity crisis. It's, it's just a, you can accept it and understand that that, that doesn't necessarily affect your identity. It's just an inclination. Yeah. Well, and again, like just because you have one attraction or find yourself thinking about a person doesn't mean you have to, oh, you know, you cisgendered white woman have found yourself attracted to another woman. Oh my gosh, you have to label yourself as bisexual or pansexual or that. No, like people can't be forced to label themselves as something. Um, You can be allowed to have feelings and not define them, which again is why I think queer um, appeals to me so much because I'm finding fluidity in every aspect of sexuality and gender identity, it's easier for me to define both at the same time because I'm thinking about both of them um, as just being queer because that I say that word queer and people go, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, and it takes care of both right away. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the interesting things I, I was r- trying to read some queer theory. A lot of it's very, very dense. But um, one of the goals is to highlight the mismatch between sex and gender and desire and to point out that being a certain sex doesn't necessarily entail a certain gender that's that's a that's a strange concept to me that I'm still trying to work out but and then your desire doesn't follow from either of those necessarily either i think it also just comes back to this idea that like we can use labels without making them so strict um you yeah. know i think one one thing about finding labels is that you're finding community too, um, which a lot of people, especially people in the LGBTQ community are looking for is people they can relate to and people they can feel safe with. So I think one, one thing that has drawn people to, to picking those labels is that they have 
they have their people, they have people they can feel they rely on and understand where they're coming from, especially if they're coming from families that don't understand and maybe shame them or whatever, unfortunately disown them. Like there's so much to it that helps people feel like they have somewhere they belong. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that, that sort of linguistic function of the label expressing itself in the social realm as a, as like you said, a community. Yeah. Um, there's two branches. Uh, when I, I talked to one of my friends last night, uh, we'll call her Tig. She studied feminist theory. In, she got a master's in feminist theory. And I called her last night to try to help explain some of this to me because queer theory is very interrelated to feminist theory. There's lots of overlapping. A lot of the language is the same that they use to describe concepts. And she pointed out that there are two camps within the queer theory movement. The first being the tri traditional identity politics movement that wants the marginalized communities to infiltrate the existing establishments or norms and become normal themselves. So, you know, gay men getting the right to marry and adopt children and sell real estate and have a nice little house. It's an attempt to normalize those marginalized cultures so that they're more acceptable to the majority. And then there's another camp that is more of a revolutionary call to arms camp, in her words, uh, that wants to call the, 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 the systems, the establishments, and the norms of society into question and attempts to fundamentally change those to reflect more marginal attitudes. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Do you feel like you sit in either of those? Oh, I mean, it depends on the day. <laughs> it depends on who I'm talking <laughs> to. Um, I, I would say there's so much in my life lately that has felt political. Um, being a queer brown person is and like female presenting is is very <laughs> tricky nowadays um you know in certain situations but particularly just in current political climates it's uh there's a lot of causes that speak to me so i i definitely wouldn't say that i'm completely out of the political realm um and i think anybody who's looking for validation of, of who they are is certainly going to be political, but I'm not, oh, I don't know. I guess that, that also kind well, of delves into the, it, it delves into the area where I, I also have my feelings of, am I queer enough to be able to be political? <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I, I kind of reject both of those branches in the sense that I, I see room for a third way, in the sense that on the one hand, 
I don't want to see gay culture adopt all of these heteronormative practices where we all just become a bunch of Pete Buttigieg's. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that sounds even funnier in the plural. Um, and, <laughs> but I also, you know, so I don't want to see the oddness or you could say the queerness of gay lifestyle watered down and conform to the norm. But I also know that most people, the vast overwhelming majority of people are not going to readily accept aspects of gay lifestyle. And I don't expect them to. And so the idea that we should call the, call the entire structure of norms that exist in society into question also seems, it just, from a strategic standpoint, it seems like a bad, bad way to go. Because that means you're going to get a lot of pushback that you wouldn't if you just, I don't know, I, I just feel like we should be tolerated and accepted and preserved in our weirdness, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, and honestly, I think that's the most queer answer you could have because there's no situation, <laughs> no subject that is just a one side or another. Like, we've, as a race, as a species, we've fallen into this idea that, there, well, you're one thing or you're another. There's, there's only these options, but queer as as an idea is just that there's more than that that why do we have to have those those defined things what what about this uh group of people over here that wants to be fucking unicorns let them be fucking unicorns like you know what i mean there's just there's so so many different experiences so many different crossovers like like i mentioned being a brown femme presenting queer that that makes me there's three different ways that i can be oppressed um which is the dark way maybe to think about it but like well that's yeah it's the intersectional way yeah which is i mean i do find that, that to be a little bit dark in some of its iterations but we'll save that for a future conversation <laughs> yeah that's that's a whole other yeah <laughs> yeah um but it but it does come into into the conversation because if you're again going back to that idea of identity if you're just identifying as one thing what about all the other aspects of you that make up you and no other person has that experience you know in the exact same way so how can you how can you ignore that and still have that conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, that brings us to, well, actually, you you mentioned before we started how queer in queer theory is not simply used as a as an adjective, but can be used as a verb in the sense that you can queer something or engage in the queering of a piece of literature or whatever it may be. Did you want to? Yeah. So I found this amazing quote, um, by Charlie Glickman, who's a sex educator has been for decades. And I, I knew of him, I haven't really delved much into his background, but, 
I found this great um, blog post about queer is a verb. And like, what does that mean to queer something? And he said, to queer something, whether it's a text, a story, an I- or an identity, is to take a look at its foundations and question them. We can explore its limits, its biases, and its boundaries. We can look for places where there's elasticity or discover ways we can transform it into something new. To queer is to examine our assumptions and decide of them it, of them we want to keep, change, discard, or play with. Um, this becomes a practice in transcending, transcending the habit of settling for predefined categories and creating new ones. And even when we leave something unchanged, we have changed our relationship to it, um, which I really appreciate, especially that last bit of like, even if something's unchanged, we can we can change our ideas of how we feel about it and how much it has an effect on us. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that, in that sense, queer or to queer something is almost a, a it's practically a philosophical enterprise in which mm. you're yeah. digging, digging beneath and uncovering the foundations and calling them into question. For sure. A search for truth. I, I definitely would consider that for myself. Yeah, search for truth, a search for... Yeah, and it has a lot of aesthetic implications, too, for for artists. I mean, whether you're... If you're an artist, you could, you're you constantly queering things. For sure. I <laughs> It's funny. Uh, I, the other day, my sister made fun of me because I mentioned that I was thinking about shaving my head again. And she goes, don't be one of those queer people who just shaves their head every single time they go through like (laughs) the end of a relationship or uh, a hard time. And I was like, listen, (laughs) (laughs) don't tell me what to do. Let me do it. And then I shaved the side of my head. A compromise. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'd be, I mean, it makes wigs fit better. I'm sure. It does. It's so much easier. Well, actually, I say that, and the only problem I had was, you know, with these Tennessee humid summers, uh, I sweat a lot. You just get that whole oily, oily glass ball going. Yeah, yeah, just falling right off my head. But at yeah. least there was like not, there wasn't like ugly matted wig head underneath. It was just yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of you wondering why we're talking about wigs, burlesque performers often use wigs as a way of costuming themselves differently for each performance. So that's not just out of the fucking blue. Um, well, and you know, I think that that can relate to the queer aesthetic for me. Um, certainly being a burlesque performer and like having different wigs and different costumes, but I like a Several people have commented that I'm a bit of a chameleon when it comes to my look. Like a lot of burlesque performers have like a favorite wig or like a a favorite look. And I think I have probably like five different looks that I jump through. Like my wigs can be fairly different, but also my makeup. So I think that, yeah, my queering of my burlesque persona happens as well. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, we, we listened to this episode of Queer Splaining, a podcast run by Callie. Is it Callie or Kaylee? Callie. Callie Wright. 
Um, it's an LGBTQ social justice oriented podcast. And in this episode, explored the, the concept of bisexuality and how that relates to queerdom. And it was very interesting for me because I'd never thought of how, I mean, I came away with it with the impression that bisexuals, because there's not really um, a solid plan <laughs> in place for them when it comes to romantic relationships or sexual sure. relationships, they, they're forced to question their sexuality and their presupposed gender roles more so than even me as a gay man, because I identify, I, I am a man and I'm gay, attracted to other men, easy enough. Now, growing up that way in a Southern rural environment wasn't necessarily that easy, but the, the inner conflicts were not, were not as difficult to navigate for me. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, it's, again, it comes back to that whole context of what was a person's environment and how did that inform how much they could be authentically themselves? Like, do you yeah. feel like you struggled with being authentic for the majority of, you know, your formative years? Like, I mean, I still struggle with authenticity, um, <laughs> but more, more in an, I'm, I, I honestly don't like the, the term identity as much because I don't feel like I've ever really struggled with my identity. I have struggled with, I like what you said, authenticity in the sense that I'm trying to be as honest and forthright and interacting with the world in good faith as possible. But I never, I never identified as gay or I never identified with being a man, those just were sim seemed they were just sort of facts to put it. Well, but then wouldn't that just mean that that's that was your identity because that just felt right to you? Like, sure. I think one of the one of the things that is so interesting about people exploring their sexuality is that they they go through this moment of like well, I don't know, like, what if they're just, there's this confusion, there's a lot of other things, but what they don't talk about is like, some people didn't have that confusion and they knew and they felt it and they were like, uh, accepting of it, at least in the back of their head, maybe not openly, but, um, you know, some people do have that just better understanding of like, well, I know what this is. Uh, and that's, that's my identity or one aspect of my identity, I should say, but they're not, they're not as confused about it. Whereas I think that's maybe another portion. And they, they brought it up in queersplaining of like people who are, who come out as bi or pansexual people just go, Oh, well, you're just confused or you can't decide or, you know, heaven forbid they go into slut shaming. Um, yeah. 
you know, just all that, that idea of confusion must be happening if you, if you can't pick one or the other, again, that, that it must be one thing or the other. It's like, oh. yeah. And I did, I, like you said, I, I didn't struggle with being gay. It was the, the most struggle I had was when puberty hit and I started being attracted to guys. I suddenly realized, oh, I'm the queer, I'm the gay, I'm the, the nasty word we used to call the other dudes when we were just picking on them. But with bisexuality, I, my first boyfriend was bisexual. And that was a, a real struggle for me and for him as well, because it was his first real relationship. And we were, he was trying to navigate these questions like, oh, well, I'm together with you, but if I have sex with this girl, is that cool? And being Lebanese and insanely jealous, my answer was obviously no. But it it gave me just the difficulties of that relationship, put a bad taste in my mouth about bisexuals for a long time. And it took me a long time to realize that his struggle was probably a lot more difficult than my struggle with our relationship. His struggle with his own identity and his own sexuality was an even bigger deal for him than me, my struggle with our relationship and our... Yeah, I mean, that, that I think also goes along with the whole like not really understanding what maybe relationships meant to him. Yeah. I called him yesterday to ask him some questions just as a source. And he, he insinuated that he has been wondering whether his attraction to men is more of an experimental discovery type of attraction, like exploring his sexuality whereas his attraction to women is more of a romantic attraction. And I thought that was interesting. He, he, he didn't come down on one side or the other on that, so he's still working through things. But Well, and again, that, that going back to what we were saying much earlier, is like there can be that separation. You can have romantic attraction to someone without having a sexual attraction or you can, or the opposite, or you can have both, but, um, that comes back to questioning and, and really understanding yourself, being authentic with your feelings and, and exploring what does it mean to be attracted to this person? What is it about this person that I'm most drawn to? And being okay if if you're only sexually attracted or only romantically attracted. I mean, obviously, explaining that to the person and having that conversation is going to be a lot harder. <laughs> but <laughs> especially if the other person is also not on board with it being one or the other and not both. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, I don't know how to have that conversation either, so... But well, it it's different. I mean, ideally, I, I guess ideally you'd want to be romantically and sexually attracted to the same person 
for for the purposes of a sustainable relationship but right well i I did want to throw out this theory of identity that i've been thinking about because i have been pursuing a lot of different subjects during my self-quarantine and one of them is neoliberalism because we we're literally watching the world economic order at least be stress tested, if not starting to break down. And neoliberalism is the theory behind our current global economic order. And one of the, one of the tenets of neoliberalism is that everything should be analyzed in terms of market forces and economic forces. And what that means for the individual is that every individual must become their own enterprise or entrepreneur. And it's led to the, I mean, the most extreme example is your Instagram influencers who've literally alienated themselves from their self in order to commodify their self and sell their self as a product. But what it's, what it seems to have led to is this, this, intensification of self-exploration and self-discovery to the point that some of it seems to be a bit neurotic. But I mean, over the past 100 years in America, we've, our economic structures have asked us to identify with products in order to sell them to us. Like the marketing that they use is asking us to define ourselves in relationship to these material objects that we're supposed to con- consume to the point where, you know, every Pride Week, 30 new products have a rainbow sticker slapped on them. But I'm wondering if you see an overemphasis on identity by some aspects of the, of the LGBTQ I think, community. I think... I see it less less about identity being a problem and more about how it's used. A- again, like not having intersectionality when it comes to that is a problem because you don't have to just define yourself in one way. Um, I do I do see your point. like I I don't think we need to completely block off. Well, I'm, identify as this, 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 that like, if I wanted to give the list of things that I identify as, it would take me forever. People would, you know, in a conversation, somebody's eyes would start glazing over. Like, that's not, that's not who you really are. Um, I do still think that it does help people find each other and it helps relate to each other. And that's fundamentally a thing that we want to do as humans. But yeah, there. I, I mean, there's definitely in terms of like companies putting a rainbow on things. Well, that's just them trying to be like, see, we're we're just as you know, virtue signaling it's a as marketing a marketing play. Boy, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I I worry sometimes that identity gets in the way of relating with other people, in the sense that, like in 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 artists the more esoteric um, 
how do you say, reclusive artists, they demand that they be understood on their terms by everyone else. Oh, well, that's existed before. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I was, that's, <laughs> that's, I think that's just the most common example is that it's, mm. it's, it's, it's almost unfair to ask the community to just drop off its conception of what you are and demand that everyone see inside and see the true self at all times. Yeah, I I guess I've kind of, <laughs> something that I think I've said for a long time and being an artist, I find it funny that I say this, but um, art is inherently selfish. We We create art because we want to express ourselves in a way but we're most of the time expecting people to absorb it in the way that we mean it. But the thing is, is no form of art, because art is, is meant to be a little bit more open-ended, um, it's supposed to be open to interpretation, no matter how much we're like, yes, it is about this specific one thing in my life that has happened and I'm going to put it all into it. No, that's not, that's not how people work. Like, like we said before, everybody's taking their own life experiences and applying them to what they, what they absorb, whether it's art, um, a conversation, just even meeting someone for the first time, they're making judgments on, you know, oh, well, that person's wearing a flannel and they got a beard. All right, they're a hipster. Like, yeah, <laughs> they're going to order the craft beer. It's based on assumptions. Yeah, exactly. Like it's based on assumptions. And obviously we can't stop people from making assumptions and certainly not going to stop them when they're uh, like watching art or listening to music. Uh, those assumptions are going to be there. That's human. And I think we have to, there's a, <clears throat> it's a fine line that we have to tread as artists or queers or, you know, whatever identity that you identify with. Is that a tautological statement? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you have, there's, there's a fine line you have to draw between expressing that and asking people to accept that and not forcing it upon them, I guess. Or at least they have to tolerate you, but you you have to tolerate the fact that they might not understand. Totally. And I, I feel like I, I came to understand that more as a burlesque performer than any other form of art that I've ever done. Really? Yeah. Um, because they're right there. Like, I started out going to college as a fine artist, but, you know, if I had been a fine artist, there could have been plenty of people who would see my art that I would never interact with, that I would never know how they're feeling, what they thought about my art, or any of that. But as a burlesque performer, and I, I'm sure fairly similar as a musician, but, like, people come up to you after shows and start talking to you, and they start telling you how they felt while watching you perform or um, what they got out of it. 
And it's so interesting to hear people be like, oh, well, yeah, I just, you were evoking this feeling of this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, I've never thought about that before, but I do now. <laughs> like, And that's great that you related to it in this different way than I never um, realized somebody could before. And that's great. Because then it it informs your performance too. Like later you're thinking about it and you're going, oh, well, you know, yeah, I could kind of see how this would be interpreted this way. And maybe this was some unconscious feelings that I was putting out there that I didn't acknowledge before. Yeah. And that ties into the way there's a lot of theorists that view sexuality and gender as performative elements. I personally don't think my sexual my sexuality is a performative act i've never i've never really felt like a performer during sex i've felt more like a engaging in a form of intimacy with somebody else almost like the opposite of performing like opening oneself up and being vulnerable but you know just even abstracted from sexuality and gender there's this notion in a lot of the foundational literature, especially in Foucault, that we are performative beings and there's a certain aesthetic that we, that runs through our existence in the world and the way we present and the way we engage and the way we act on the stage, if you will. And it is different forms of presentation, like in the, the act of presentation um, with what we wear, how we do our hair. I mean, and and certainly as stage performers, obviously there's a there's an aspect of that too that gets heightened. You know, when I I used to come back to this idea of a, a bio queen. Um, I did not understand for the longest time. I was like, well, but there's drag queens and then there's burlesque performers. Like I didn't understand this idea that somebody could be heightening their femininity to the nth degree uh-huh. being biologically female and have that be a thing. Like I, for the longest time I was like, I don't get that. What does that mean? How is that? Uh, how is that a thing? And the more I delved into what queerness meant and yeah, again, this performative aspect of sexuality, but also identity, uh, gender identity and just personal identity, I guess. Um, I, I started to understand, I was like, Oh, okay. I, I can see how that it's still a performance. It's still something that's a heightened version. Yeah of who they are, but it is, it is its own. And it, realm. it sort of helps you divorce that performance or that aesthetic from yourself. And you recognize it as an artifice, as a piece of artifice, as mm-hmm. a presentation rather than Definitely. this is your identity. This is, you know, we, we all can't be Jim Morrison or Kurt Cobain when we go out on stage and just tear our chests open and, Although even I, I don't buy the lie. I think they were performing too. Oh, everybody is on stage. We can be super vulnerable on stage. It is possible to be utterly vulnerable on stage and still be performing. There is no reason why being 
a performer has to mean being inauthentic. It's hard. It's a fine line, especially with burlesque, like because we're doing a tease and there's this aspect of sexuality, like a lot of people will come up after the show and be like, Oh, I, the way you looked at me and I, I, like we made eye contact and I felt, you know, I felt the connection and you're like, Oh honey. Oh, that's, that's very sweet. But also it means I did my job. Um, thank you for connecting with me while I was on stage, but that doesn't mean I'm like, actually interested in you like that's explaining that aspect it can be tricky but but there is some part of you that does make that very real connection with someone um if i see somebody making a stank face in the audience i make it a point to find a moment where i can make that person smile and you know what that smile is the most authentic thing you will ever see because when it happens, they are experiencing a moment of genuine joy or genuine, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's involuntary. Yeah, exactly. So it's still performative, but that that moment is super authentic. Well, Evelyn, we've reached about an hour, and yeah. I like to wrap things up at this point because it saves me the editing nightmare. I feel like I have learned quite a great deal over this. Like the reason I asked you on was because I had no idea what queer really meant or stood for. And you have enlightened me. Oh, I'm glad. I feel like I learned a lot too. I mean, and this is the thing. This is what I love so much about podcasts is like having this dialogue. We learn from each other it's it's better than just reading an article. Absolutely. Well, unless you have anything else, I'm going to stop recording. No, I think that's everything. Well, like I said earlier, you can find Evelyn's costuming online at Etsy. If you go to Etsy and search for Blue Lawless, it's a pun on the blue laws. <laughs> and you can find her... At some point, when all of this madness ceases <laughs> on stage. But until that point, we are signing off Near Dark Radio. Mm-hmm.